Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with my colleague, Aaron Murphy, who's a Deputy Director and Senior Fellow for the Economics Program at CSIS. Aaron wrote a really interesting book that came out this year called Burmese Haze, which is a play on George Orwell's title of his book, Burmese Days. And Burmese Haze is sort of a memoir and sort of a you're there book talking about the evolution of U.S.-Myanmar relations over a 10-year period. Erin spent a period of time in the American government as an analyst at the CIA. She then left government service and then was in the consultancy world trying to help businesses invest in Myanmar with a consulting firm called Inlay Consulting, which she'll explain, I think, what that means. I know what it means because I read the book. And then she was at a well-regarded firm here in town for a while, but we have been very fortunate to hire Erin as a, a deputy director and a senior person here at CSIS. I love the book. I bought it retail. It was excellent. And so, Erin, I'm so happy you're here today, and thanks for coming on Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for reading the book and contributing to my royalties. Absolutely. I'm sure you know. (laughs) (laughs) All 30 cents of them. It's great. So when I do these, I ask people, tell me how you ended up doing what you're doing. I I know you have a Japan thing, right? I think you lived in Japan for a while. I think you speak Japanese. So tell me a little bit about your career. Where'd you grow up and how'd you end up getting into Asia issues? Then how did you end up becoming, I guess, in essence, a Myanmar expert? Because all the, the names are properly spelt which is like a huge accomplishment. So how'd that happen? On that note, yeah, I was born and raised in Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And for any viewers that are from the North Andover area, go Knights. But, you know, I had always been interested in traveling overseas. So I thought any career that I was going to do, I really wanted to to travel. um, But I also wanted to have a job that had impact. I was a real serious kid. So, you know, in kindergarten, when they go around and say, what are you scared of? And kids were like, ghosts or, you know, robbers. And I was like, the Soviets. I bought Contra Coffee in eighth grade to support freedom movements. (laughs) (laughs) The little known fact about me. When did you first start reading Foreign Affairs magazine? I was probably about 12. I tried to uh, teach myself Chinese when I was in middle school. So you can already tell I was a real popular kid. My mother, when I was a teenager, started working at the Fletcher School um, in the registrar's office. And so, you know, I'd spend my summers there working, getting, you know, helping out with professors and really got a great education in, in you know, what an international career looked like, and then went to Tufts, uh, which had a strong international relations program. But, you know, in talking to folks, like I had dreams of working in Europe, and I was going to live in Italy, and it's going to be magical. But, you know, I, I was just so much more strategic when I was younger than I, than I am now. And that, you know, I realized like Europe was going to start converting into the euro, they were creating the EU, and they were not looking for Americans to go work there. So I thought, okay, what can I do to work overseas and, you know, really build up an expertise that will be important? And I was like, Asia. 
And the Japan Exchange and Teaching Program, the JET program, recruited pretty heavily out of Tufts. And that, that's really what set me on the path. I spent two years in the most rural area of Japan called Saga. So instead of learning Japanese, I learned a dialect, which was wow. very unwelcome when I came back to my Japanese class at SICE. But yeah, I spoke like a 75-year-old male farmer. But afterwards, like SICE being the U.S. policymaker factory it was, I joined the CIA, had you know dreams of working on alliance issues. And they're like, no, we're, we're going to put you on a not a well-known account and no one cares. So I said, Hey, you know what? If a door opens, I want to walk right through it. I want to be able to test my analytic skills. We're not going to know if I, you know, am cut out for this job unless I get tested. So they're like, great. Well, there is a constitutional referendum is the first vote in Myanmar or Burma, uh, whatever you want it to be for you. In 18 years, there's always violence. Um, this was during the Bush administration and he and the first lady were very focused on it. So I said, sign me up. And that that was like the second biggest turn in my life because two weeks after I started working on the Burma issue, Cyclone Nargis happened. And suddenly I was inundated with calls from the Pentagon and the White House and, you know, what's going on at USAID and just continued to work on Burma and had a front row seat to um, the most punitive policies, to lifting sanctions and traveling with Secretary Clinton to Myanmar. And then, you know, going out on my own, I saw an opportunity um, to help companies maybe not try to screw things up in the country and also make sure that the country knew what they were getting into and inviting businesses in. And, you know, running your own business can only get you so far. And I was like, you know what, I've I'm not, you know, here to do an empire. So um, when the first opportunity to go back in the U.S. government came up, I joined the Development Finance Corporation working on Indo-Pacific. So, you know, again, Burma, always part of my heart, but like really wanted to get back out there. And then Matt Goodman from the econ program stole me away. And, and now I'm here at CSIS. All right. So there was a, I can't believe I know this, but there was a really important article in Foreign Affairs at the end of 2007 by Eric Mitchell and Mike Green saying the U.S. should open itself up to Myanmar. Were you in government at the time? I was in government at the time and I ended up working with Derek Mitchell, but uh, Mike Green was going to be in a job that they both recommended a special envoy. But yeah, it was pretty groundbreaking because at that time, everything, every conversation, every piece of legislation, every article, all these human rights groups and our sanctions policy generally was all squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. Um, so this was really a break from that. Okay, so let's go from 88 to 2008. What was U.S. policy towards Myanmar in that 20-year period? Really punitive. And I think the overarching theme was punitive through sanctions. So in 1988, um, for those unfamiliar with uh, Burma history, massive protests across the country. It had come on the heels of uh, a demonetization that wiped out wealth overnight. The former junta leader, Ne Win, kind of a kooky guy, also pretty dangerous, is he the guy that organized the nappy doll? No, it, it came after him. But like, he, as you can see, these uh, kooky ideas, you know, just kind of uh, part and parcel of uh, successive regimes, but kind of based on similar ideas and recommendations from astrologers, um, if you believe that. He changed the currency to denominations of nine, which was his lucky number, which wasn't a lucky number for anybody else. You know, everything became worthless. And then you have a country that was once the envy of everyone, had the best medical school, the best university, highest literacy rates, um, a wealth of natural resources, suddenly become least developed country. 
what happens after 2007, 2008? I, this is Dan's, you know, clunky understanding of this is that China bosses around some of the dictators in Myanmar and mistreats them and kind of humiliates them over some dam or something like this. They get upset and say, you know what, I, we don't want to be a full-on vassal state of the Chinese Communist Party. And that was what prompted an, a reopening. It wasn't to achieve the Millennium Development Goals. It wasn't to give a speech at the World Economic Forum or get an honorary degree at Harvard. It was like, I don't like how I'm being treated by these, by my neighbor. And so I think I'm going to rethink my relationships. Am I oversimplifying it? It's definitely a piece of it. I mean, I don't think we'll ever have the full story of why they opened it, but it was definitely a significant piece. I mean, I think one thing that people kind of confuse with Myanmar is saying like it's a proxy state of China. And yeah, when you look at uh, its trading numbers, the investment numbers, the strange special economic zones that keep creeping into its eastern corridor and its its diplomatic ties, it's pretty easy to say, okay, well, it's a proxy state. But what folks don't really understand, that there is a long historical tension between the two countries and that the Burma army, the Myanmar military, the one that's in charge now, does not love China. It's a relationship of convenience. They're neighbors. They share a huge border. There's obviously cultural and familial ties that you have to deal with. And of course, trade relations that go back before America was even a country. But they're very concerned about their own sovereignty and um, the cohesiveness of the country and certainly don't like China to meddle in any of their affairs. That includes with their ethnic armed groups, which do receive, I mean, Beijing doesn't necessarily sanction this, but Yunnan big question marks or, you know, mercenary PLA troops can train these armed ethnic groups, provide them weapons. There's a lot of trade, bilateral trade going back and forth. So of course the military does not love that. But then the armed ethnic groups don't also love that the Beijing is protecting them in the UN and providing, you know, the main central government with weapons too. So it's a pretty complicated relationship as complicated relationships go. Um, but it was certainly a factor. I mean, the more you can diversify your portfolio in terms of investment and friends, the better off you are. So, okay, this is my understanding of Myanmar, which is, it's like really long. It's like a thousand miles long. So it's hard to visualize. It's between India and China. It touches the Himalayas, and then it's got jungles. So if yep. you go from the tip, it's up, up by the mountains, and then it goes all the way down to kind of jungles. And so, and they've got gas and oil and minerals and jade and wood. They got yep. drugs. And then it's not all one ethnic group. There's a majority ethnic group which I don't, and maybe it's the Burmese. And then there's sort of 40, I'm guessing 40% are a mixture of a variety of minorities that have different kind of relationships with the central government. And there's enough money from all these different extractive industries to finance armed groups and, and outside powers such as China sometimes gin that up and enable some of that. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, if, if you could pick the most complex, fractious country in the world, it's got to be Myanmar. Um, you're right. I mean, the majority is the ethnic Bamar or Burmese. And then you have dozens and dozens of ethnicities, which can be distinguished by their clothes, by their language, by their customs. And some of them are, are completely different. And you're right. You have, you know, 14,000 foot peak 
at the top and then you get below sea level at the bottom in the delta. And yeah, they sit atop like the world's most richest natural resources, has the best source of the highest quality jade and rubies. And it does, it fuels a lot of conflict. Um, it could fuel a lot of development, but instead it's fueling a lot of conflict. You have EAOs, the ethnic armed groups, uh, using this to help finance their wars and the Myanmar military also trying to do that similarly. So it's just a real rich tapestry of issues. Okay, so walk me through, I'm going to call it 2009 to 2021. We had, I'm going to call it a period of major engagement over kind of a 12-year period. And you were in the government, and then you were outside the government for that. I think the book covers that period of time. Is that true? That's right. That's right. And what I was trying to do with those developments, um, especially when things got a little hinky with the Rohingya and Aung San Suu Kyi, that... A lot of the things that we were seeing had ties to history, and it was important to consider that, especially as we were opening engagement, because it informed a lot of what we were seeing on the, the on the Myanmar side, and they would keep bringing it up, but it mattered, definitely. Who is Aung San Suu Kyi? She is probably the most well-known from the country. She is the daughter of the country's independence leader, Aung San, who fought against the British and then after fought with them to bring about independence, but was murdered along with um, several of his cabinet leaders before the country truly achieved independence. So he he is like a mythological character. And she returned, she married a, a British uh, scholar and lived outside of the country for a long time, but always knew that if the country called and needed her, she would go back because the country has been in and out of dictatorships for a long time. And one of Aung San's colleagues, Ne Win, took over the country in a mini coup from 58 to 60 and then after 62 until 88. And in 88, when the country was in flames with protests, she just so happened to be there taking care of her mother who had a stroke and felt this was her calling. This was the time. And so as a country was erupted in protest, she goes to the most symbolic place in the country called Shwedagon Pagoda, which is a Buddhist pagoda and place of worship, one of the most important sites in the country, and makes a speech. There's hundreds of thousands of people there, and she captivated the world. You know, this was around the time where there's a lot of people power movements in the Philippines and Pakistan and in China. And she really fit. She spoke beautiful English. You know, she's very attractive woman. She's a charismatic, photogenic, almost sort of ethereal being. Also, I think for the West, because her English was so amazing and she was sort of just sort of this attractive presence, I think captured the imagination of the West as well. Oh, yeah. And she had the perfect Hollywood story. And over the years, I mean, she sacrificed a lot. She essentially sacrificed her family for the country. She formed a political party, uh, contested elections in 1990 when the junta allowed them. But when her party won in a landslide, the junta was like, just kidding. We're not going to accept this. Threw her under house arrest. A lot of um, the people who won in jail and there they remain. You know, she was let in and out over the next 20 years, but basically her husband died. She wasn't able to see him again. Her children were stripped of their citizenship. She wasn't able to see them. And, you know, she was isolated, but kept up the cause, kept trying to shine a light on what was going on. She was incredibly influential. U.S. policymakers, as they grew in seniority, um, both in Congress and in the administration, people who had been monitoring this issue since 1988, really took their cues from her because of this background, because of her experience and because of the way that the people of Myanmar loved her. 
Is she a human rights activist or is she a political figure? She claims that she was never a human rights activist, and she says she was always a politician. But I think that when you're under house arrest and your cause is pro-democracy, it's really easy to conflate that as a human rights issue. So, you know, when she can't speak for herself, others speak for her. And I think really had a sense that she was definitely a human rights activist. So when she was being more real politic after she was released and then actually became part of the political system, finally, um, I think it really dismayed a lot of people that she wasn't necessarily fighting for all the causes that we had hoped she would. What I loved about the book is you talk a lot about American soft power in different ways. You talk about public diplomacy, the America Center, emergency response, trying to attract private investment, uh, AID, democracy and governance. Could you talk about that? Because I was particularly appreciative of that, that you had a, a particular sensitivity and nuance to that part of our the way we engage with the world. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I think one of America's greatest strengths are in some of our, our smallest and softest programs. It's where we have real impact on the ground. And like, that's where you get to the hearts and minds. And we're really good at it. And, you know, I hear from so many people who were either released from political prison or were political prisoners or people who grew up in the system um, that really appreciated what we were trying to do, not just that we we're fighting for democracy and their their rights, but actually giving them the tools. So one of our best programs was uh, we had an American center in the country. And in fact, we have two. We have one in Mandalay, which is right in the center of the country, and one in Yangon, which is the commercial capital. I like the, the Sinatra version of the road to Mandalay. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite version. <laughs> All right. So things go bad. Let's say 2020, 2021, 2022. You wrote this book, which I, again is called Burmese Haze by Aaron Murphy you kind of capture sort of this 10 or 12 year period and sort of almost after the book is written, things go the wrong way. What happened? Yes. So in 2020, it turns out the U.S. wasn't the only country having an election and uh, Myanmar was too. Um, But I think what happened after that was a symptom of a greater cause. So I'll back it up a little bit. What really started to fall apart was an issue that wasn't new to the country, but really unfortunately captured global attention in a bad way. And it was uh, the violence against the ethnic minority Rohingya population, where uh, the military led a clearance operation based on um, there was an attack by something called the Arakan Rohingya Solidarity Association, which was very loosely tied to the Rohingya, but the Rohingya would never recognize them as representing their interests, attacked a dozen police outposts, which then resulted in this clearance operation, which created the largest refugee movement since World War II. And you had 700,000 refugees moving into Bangladesh like in a few days. Plus you had hundreds killed, tortured, maimed, awful. But what happened afterwards was pretty horrific. You already had an incident in 2017. So the big incident happened in 2018. Kofi Annan was asked to lead a commission, came up with recommendations. The day before the report's release, Aung San Suu Kyi, or the day of the report's release, Aung San Suu Kyi said, you know, had told him to be aggressive in his recommendations, fully supported the commission, said, we're going to do this. And then the report gets released. And really, like within hours, the ARSA attack happens, then you have this. Aung San Suu Kyi, despite being a supporter of the Kofi Annan report, suddenly is silent on the Rohingya issue, doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything to stop the violence, doesn't do anything to try to helm the, the military in. So there's a lot of questions as to where does she stand on the Rohingya, but on Muslims in general, because she hasn't spoken out on any violence. 
She goes to The Hague to defend the military, which to us seems horrific, but in an election year was great political points for her because almost everybody in Myanmar, including other ethnic minorities that get beat up by the military all the time, really don't like the Rohingya. And it's not just a Myanmar issue, it's a regional issue. So within the country, there's a lot of hostility against the Rohingya. It's in essence some kind of a, for a variety of reasons, but largely it's, it's a form of discrimination against them, right? Correct. Correct. It's, it's racist, xenophobic. It's terrible. Yeah. And so there was a lot of shock as to what Aung San Suu Kyi didn't do. And so um, she starts uh, losing her credibility with the international community. So if you're the military, who's the one person who's your buffer against international community that allows aid to still go on to help shield you from sanctions? Maybe she's not as useful anymore. So you have the 2020 election in November in Myanmar, also here. And um, you also have discussions from the NLD party, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, and from her herself about reforming the constitution, which basically enshrines the military in politics. 25% of all parliamentary seats, regional parliaments, national parliaments, they can name three of the most powerful ministers. And so she's talking about changing this, and they're already starting to chip away with this. Well, that is a step too far for the military, which knows like at some point this has to be reformed, but like just not now. So what probably sounds a little familiar to Americans is that you start hearing talk of election fraud and, you know, voter fraud and all sorts of illegitimate actions that happened during the election. And in January, this rhetoric rises to a point where enough people are concerned that something might happen. And Min Aung Lang, who's the junta leader, says, oh, no, don't worry, we're not going to do a coup. And sure enough, in a couple of weeks, what happens? They take power in a coup. And I think Min Aung Lang really overestimated a lot of things. One, um, maybe he misread the popularity of their actions against the Rohingya. Maybe he underestimated what uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's lack of popularity with the international community or that people would care, that maybe democracy was eroding everywhere, so no one's going to really, you know, pay attention to what happens in their country. And so now you have a situation where uh, the military is once again in power. Um, people feel that they've lost their future. You've had 2,000 people killed, hundreds of thousands displaced, 15,000 arrested. They just ex executed four activists, two who were very well known two months ago. It's, it's a horror show. It's a horrible end to a wonderful book. I love the book. I encourage people to go out and read Burmese Haze by Aaron Murphy. Are you optimistic about the future of the country? You know, I think Americans have this annoying trait where we can't help but be optimistic and try to find the bright spot. The story is not over, you know, and I think the smallest of silver linings here is that um, you find former NLD party members or current um, and, you know, you're seeing more cohesiveness and at least a greater understanding of what happened to the Rohingya and maybe a better discussion of what happens when we take Myanmar back as a democracy. So conversations like real planning happening so um, that they can be ready. And uh, hopefully the world will be ready to help them. You know, I, I can't help but not give up totally. It's, it's very dark times, but hopefully this is just temporary. Aaron, I love the book. Everyone ought to go out and read Burmese Haze by Aaron Murphy. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. 
You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 